Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well with everything going on around the world. We have Raul Raha with us today to talk about Kotlin and some more things he's been up to. We'll get right to the show. So why do you think people are choosing Kotlin right now? compared to either like Rust or staying with Scala, Haskell? Well, I think there is a set of uh, different factors. I, I don't really think people are not choosing Scala or Haskell. They're choosing coming over those. I think there's other reasons why. And for example, one of them is Kotlin uh, has uh, a strong emphasis in, in Java compatibility. Uh, which makes it pretty easy uh, to transition, both uh, in style and also in terms of like uh, what the tooling supports. So, for example, uh, if you take a take a file in Java and you paste it in IntelliJ, automatically translates it to does it through several phases. So it does a pretty good uh, job. So it has these kinds of features that makes. Uh, Life uh, for people that come from like a broader communities that have much more audi bigger audiences, like in the case of uh, Java, uh, to have the tooling ready uh, as they go in the ID, they already use. So it's kind of like a brain uh, in a way. Kala has those uh, features too in the ID, but Kotlin also has uh, the support and uh, power for big organizations, like for example, Google, that has blessed it for Android uh, development and who is actively working in the Kotlin compiler uh, for purposes of their projects in Android, such as Jetpack Compose and the new library. So there's many reasons why people might, may choose uh, Kotlin. I think one of the big reasons, like we can probably talk about that uh, a little bit <clears throat> later, is to that in Kotlin is uh, very succinct in terms of like syntax, so it's very you know verbose uh, at all. And because it has suspension, most of the use cases that you have around higher kind of types or parameterization like we do in Scala and all those other notions and concepts in which uh, we in, in Scala and Haskell and other functional languages encode with uh, data types. In then you have like the notion of uh, uh, single shot multi prompt delimited continuations, which is like a fancy word to say you can write callback code in direct style, imperative style. Compiler performs transformations, but to the eye of the user, uh, he doesn't have that uh, nested uh, style that we often see when we use like a map or we use a back-oriented style um, programming. So that, that is potentially one of the other big reasons, like the languages, uh, which is like Haskell and Scala seem to be more, uh, serve a lot of purposes and a lot of uh, features. As Kotlin is very focused on removing uh, those features from languages and assimilating them as part of syntax or structures, even though they're not generalized, uh, but because they make sense to the broader programming community. For example, in Kotlin, you have uh, built-in out-of-the-box support for nullable types, which is 
you have a safe runtime to deal with null, which is uh, faster than the one in Scala because the one in Scala uses a uh, type and performs allocations. Because nullable types in Kotlin is kind of like a free abstraction way. Um, so it's compiler tracked. And same for the suspend effect, which will be IO or any other, sorry, or any other monadic data type uh, for which you are targeting uh, your program. So those uh, make the ergonomics of uh, the language, despite not having advanced features like uh, Scala or other languages like Haskell or at least in terms of like higher kind of types or path dependent types, uh, very appealing still because it already gives you uh, a lot of the work for the style of programming that most of us do, which is IO style programming, having to handle errors, having to handle uh, effects and things like that. So that's potentially another reason why uh, people like Kotlin. This is a reason though that most people don't really um, see because they immediately associate uh, functional programming with uh, that indirect style. And it isn't really that association. And if you go back to the top notion of continuations and the continuation monad, mother of all monads, researching papers and years, you can see that the way you encode monads or the way you encode these kinds of abstractions are useful in a language don't need to follow uh, always the same direct uh, function passing style that can be potentially hidden from the user even much easier uh, syntax yeah so all all the people that i've talked to about colin at least do where i work uh always kind of sing the praises of coroutines can you kind of talk about that a little bit so basically, um, it's, a, it's a, an issue in the uh, broad community of programming and Kotlin itself uh, when people talk about coroutines. Because uh, there is uh, coroutines is two things. One of them is a part of the standard library intrinsics. So the standard library of Kotlin gives you a set of primitives that allows you to work with continuations. Uh, which they call coroutines or continuation. That term is mixed in the standard library. There's also a notion of a coroutine scope, which is something similar to what you would uh, as an executor service or some kind of uh, context that knows how to run those uh, functions when they are you know, piped. You can create your own runners or you can implement your own runtime for this suspension system that exists in the standard library. This system mentions the word coroutine itself. And the, main, the bigger part of the community associates uh, coroutines with a library. It's a library by JetBrains called Kotlin X Coroutines. And this library is precise a runtime of this base system that the standard library uh, provides for people to write programs atop a continuation. So this library, the Codinex Coroutines library, it's a library that uh, encapsulates concurrent patterns uh, and it has as a primitive or as a main uh, way to, to do this uh, notion of like lightweight futures or uh, eager futures, so similar to the notion of the Scala future. Um, they run eager by default, but they also can be run uh, lazy. 
you have control over the politics on how they fire. But this is a library, and this is what people usually often call coding X coroutines. Now, there's other libraries that implement the suspension system. For example, in case of Arrow, we have a lazy version of the suspension system. We have our own uh, suspension system implementation, which would be equivalent to, for example, say, Cats.io. This implementation contains no wrapping or nesting in that types. Yet it passes all of the laws of uh, Cats effect and others. It has the, the ability to have the same semantics and, and safety without the indirect style. So this uh, other library called ArrowFX Coroutines, uh, a library from Arrow, provides an alternative runtime. What Colding has decided is that instead of baking uh, concurrency into the standard library or in the language, this gives you the primitive for single shot uh, continuations. And with those uh, primitives, uh, basically, that allow you to suspend a function or start uh, a function or a coroutine. Uh, and that is similar to, like, you know, shift reset or yield uh, to other processes that are waiting. So with this style of programming, you can encode uh, the same notion. That's why um, coroutines is very popular. Coroutines is popular because, for one, because they are suspended functions, they're tracked. Attract effects. The compiler won't allow you to put a coroutine in a main method or in a place that is not suspended. It's effectively tracking the I/O effect, ensuring that some functions are completely different than other functions and can only run in the right context so that they are error handled and properly safe. Uh, this uh, this library has extended to the point that. Uh, uh, Places like Android, which is like a huge one of uh, the Kotlin community and you know, the Java people that come to Kotlin as well, uh, they have the ability to have effect control tracking for I.O. already in the Spring applications they're using the Kotlin and also in the Android applications they're using and everywhere because it's a language feature, not like a side library optional. This suspend tracking of the effect is in the language. And this is great because uh, it gives also the ability uh, to other libraries to create uh, runtimes that are uh, can be different. You can use suspension functions in a different way. For example, in Arrow, we use this runtime to implement monad comprehensions in place. What this implies is that you don't have to have a special contract like a for block. Is that for any monad you have in the environment, for example, an IO value, you can just say, give me what's inside of it right here. And that actually turns uh, internally, the compiler turns that into a CPS transformation that is similar to what flat map does. And that gives you, uh, you know, very easy syntax with IO, which is uh, ergonomic and easy to understand to everyone, even those that don't understand functional programming or function passing. Styles. So you work on Arrow right now, right? Yeah, I'm actually, uh, I'm working actively. I've been working in the last couple of uh, years in the Kotlin compiler and building Arrow Meta. And this is a meta programming framework for Kotlin, similar in idea to Scala Meta, but uh, 
it's uh, different because the Kotlin compiler has different um, like extension hooks you can hook into the different uh, phases. It's not just three transformations and quasi-quoting and this kind of style of uh, manipulation. It's also a, a tool that can hook into all the compiler uh, phases and give you an API to interact and interface with the Kotlin compiler to create uh, Kotlin plugins in a... Yeah, I'm working on Aerometa and also been uh, working on maintaining Aero and uh, we're trying to push it forward from 47 degrees. So we have uh, just me, but many others in 47 degrees like Simon, Raquel, Ram, Dani, Alberto Bayano. There's many others that are uh, part of the Aero uh, team. And we are all working on pushing Aero towards the first uh, stable release, which is uh, going to come up with... Uh, Kotlin 1.4.20, I believe. Would you say that Arrow is analogous to like what Cats is and Arrow Effects is Cats Effect? You can see them that way, but Arrow is uh, quickly morphing differently in a different uh, direction because, uh, for example, something we found uh, with this uh, direct style and this continuation passing style is that a lot of the APIs that we traditionally would offer, like CATS offer, uh, are no longer needed. So there's a lot of the scenarios where we are seeing uh, instead of having to teach people that if to work in the functor hierarchy, you need to know these like 15 functions that go all the way from functor to uh, concurrent, right? like map, flat map, and all those. <clears throat> the direct style uh, that Kotlin brings moves uh, the need to use any of those all the way up to uh, the Mona hierarchy, which is why we'll be covering uh, CATS core. Uh, so really, in Aero core, we are not seeing much of a need for a lot of those uh, functions because our data types can have computational blocks where they have direct styles, so you can just bind either and, and bind the left of an either and things like that. And you don't have to, you know, map left and then do all this uh, dance around uh, the values that you are trying to pass around. So this uh, allows us to give people a much linear library and API where all they have is essentially fold and little more for a given data type. And everything else is a computational block that it's the same for all data types. They all have an invoke uh, function, which is equivalent to the apply in a Scala, where you don't have to specifically uh, call it. And whenever you call this invoke function in a value that comes uh, from a monadic factor like either or option or whatever, it just gives you uh, on the left side value that was inside without blocking the CPS transformation. So I'm seeing a different path in FP including I'm seeing in Scala and Haskell and other uh, languages, and I think other people are in agreement too that uh, at the beginning we did a lot of porting because that was our experience. Like we were long term users of CATS and CATS effects and Onyx and all of these uh, different libraries. And at, uh, later, as we've learned about the internals of the compiler and what's possible truly to do in Kotlin is not really advertised, it's more, there's no documentation, you have to just go in there. 
we trace our way back, we've seen that there's a lot of uh, things in the language that make programming easier. And we want also error to remain only idiomatic, meaning we're not necessarily wanting to keep the, the style that comes from, from Scala or Haskell. Uh, for example, one of the things we're going to do is like at the beginning, many error users may know or people from the Scala community that have watched our progress. Because in Kotlin, we don't have higher kind of types. In code type classes, we had to emulate them uh, following a couple of very tricks in a safe cast. It's internal, but in any case, this is not something we want to be doing. And with further research, we discovered that modeling kinds in terms of continuations removes the nesting of F. We can make them concrete to any other type. Now we have a new means for polymorphism. It is simpler. It does not require higher kind of uh, types to encode the things we need to encode uh, in Kotlin. So that's going to change as well. So we're kind of an effort of uh, dropping baggage and things that we copied that we think are not necessary and pin those that we think that people like and they're really, truly uh, useful. Things like option in error are going away global types in Kotlin are isomorphic and they're much more powerful than any option data type. It's like uh, the IO data type is going away uh, as well. Uh, we're going to have a direct API for IO with effect tracking in our library. And that is going to essentially mean that error is going to drastically uh, deviate from its origins in the that's uh, Scala Z and of the encodings that we learn and then I learned originally. And yeah, it's uh, something that I'm kind of satisfied too about because in my journey, as uh, I don't know if you remember, but we started, we were doing freestyle in in, Sc in Scala around three months. Um, there was mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, that moment there wasn't an IO and free wasn't enough for handling and we were like in that world of trying to find the right encoding and IOs were uh, being born in Scala and that's when my real real interest to this particular problem uh, started and I found later that in a less functional language which has a notion of continuations I can uh, have this free structure that I can leave to any data type with much easier uh, direct syntax and that everyone understands with uh, complex uh, types. So I am satisfied uh, that there has come to this and I'm also happy that I'm seeing uh, directions in Scala, uh, revamping the Scala sync uh, puzzles and syntax and all of those. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of things still we can do for the future of functional programming and it doesn't have to stop. Um, we are now type classes, these IOs, or by functors or trifunctors. So, I mean, that quest, try to find more ergonomics. <laughs> you showed me Kotlin type proofs maybe three months ago when we talked. Uh, I know you just did a talk as well on them. Do you want to kind of talk about what those are a little bit? So, Kotlin type proofs, what we've done is. Um, 
Kara. Initially, we wanted to have a set of features implemented in the compiler as a plugin. Uh, and these uh, features included features such as union types, uh, type refinement, uh, a way of implicits that were coherent that is different than the resolution in Scala, things like that. So we implemented uh, a couple of those uh, features entirely ad hoc. So I went into type checker and basically rewrote it to support union types. I rewrote the type checker to support higher kind of types. And I did this exercise several times until I really realized that uh, what I was doing was nothing than uh, an expression of what is in the curry howard correspondence in terms of the implication relationship. And I saw that in Kotlin, you have this implication through subtyping. So subtyping is the natural way to coerce, to uh, add syntax to anything, right? So uh, as I was observing the how the Kotlin compiler behaves, uh, we realized that all of these features, including union types, can be implemented with a core feature uh, called type proofs. And type proofs is nothing but a, a, what in Kotlin we call an extension function. An extension function is a function that goes from one type to another. So uh, in Kotlin, there's the notion of functions having receiver types. It's like if you project syntax uh, or like the new features that are coming in Dotty for your extension, so similar feature. And these uh, functions that you can declare top level uh, in the package, you can say, for example, I, if I have uh, the data type a string, I have uh, data type uh, or, or a proof of monoid of a string or any other thing or persistent of users, doesn't matter the domain. Uh, I can, if I can, I can go from one type to the other, I can project the syntax of the first type on the second type. So this allows us to encode a way for type classes where are not necessarily based on values, they're based on proofs. So you uh, provide a proof and that becomes like a implicit action in the system. And now whatever type A seen, you can access the member of type B directly. You can tell the proof that it can coerce, like you do in, in a Scala with implicit conversions, or you can tell the proof that it's a refinement, so it has to be validated uh, before the transition from a type uh, to another. So with that feature, we implemented uh, all features that we are pushing forward in Aerometa. That includes uh, union types, uh, similar to the ones proposed in Dolly with similar semantics, except for the intersection, which in Kotlin, uh, we don't have intersection types at the moment. And we have uh, also type refinements, like the ones in Scala, which currently are based uh, on, I believe they're based on path-dependent types, like in the refine uh, library. Type refinements, um, mm -hmm. I mean, they're more based on uh, data flow analysis, smart casting, which is a feature that I'm surprised that other function languages don't use much. But in Kotlin, basically, as you progress through the data flow, uh, you can observe that certain values have certain properties, and those are preserved throughout the program. For example, you can say, um, 
this value is no longer null because you're in an if statement that checks that. So contextually, the compiler knows inside the if statement that is safe to call. The compiler determines uh, based on the scoping and safety happens, which implies that rules that we deem always, uh, like in functional programming, we say, well, is it safe to call list head? And everyone says no, because the list might be empty. But in this case, if you have contextual uh, data flow analysis and you have checked in a logical block before the one you are, that the list is not empty, then the call to head is entirely safe. Just a safe combinator in the context of a precondition. This is, uh, in a way, uh, you can model liquid types or refined types uh, without necessarily having to tag the type level and, and having the compiler uh, perform that computation. It's a different computation. It's through data flow uh, analysis. And that's also something we are we're working on to, to improve the semantics uh, and to uh, find better and safer software because that's really what we're using functional programming for. And uh, in these languages, which we have other tools, we're trying to take advantage uh, of that to get the most out of it without you know, having to be exactly the same style as you would find uh, the tr more traditional functional programming languages that derive from Haskell or that kind of encoding. Are, are you finding the adoption of FP the, the FP ecosystem that Arrow's kind of provided now to be greater now that you're moving away from like the category theory? Well, it's not that so much that we're moving away from it. It's that we are keeping it. I mean, we're keeping modules because one thing about Arrow uh, is that it's unlike uh, CATS or CATS Effect or maybe other libraries in Insta where size might not be as important. Arrow is heavily consumed in Android. So Android libraries usually require a uh, very modular approach. Uh, and we are still going to keep some of these type classes around. They will have a different encoding. And you will have a chance to use uh, things like Profunctor or things like that, right? It's not like we're, not gonna, we're just going to toss them out in that. We don't have that aspect. We are just like uh, modularizing them and promoting... Uh, style that people use frequently in production, yet if you are in research and want to get access to all of the abstractions uh, on category theory, and those are those will be preserved as well. Would you, you will just have to uh, import an extra artifact, which is basically uh, more categorical or the more uh, kind of like type classes. Whereas in the arrow core artifacts, you will have the simpler ones. A, a goal we strive for is to not have type classes uh, grouped. So that's one of the biggest problems we find in adoption in coding before functional programming. So if you, uh, everyone knows what map does in coding. Everyone knows what flat map does. They come from Java. They've been using streams. It's all over the coding uh, standard library. People don't know that that is in Monad or that is in Functor or that is in X. What we're trying to move is towards a style of polymorphism where those uh, independent combinators encoded more as uh, similar to some interfaces in Java, so single function interfaces or single abstract functions. 
you can use polymorphically without caring where they come from. And then uh, with the Acompiler plugin, we are building a system that structurally determines uh, whether your um, your data type uh, conforms the polymorphism expressed. Is either it provides a member with a compatible signature or provides proof uh, with an extension function that it can pull uh, that. So it's a different way of uh, polymorphism that doesn't also require, yet again, uh, nesting, continuous nesting and the continual constraint, family constraint passing, which becomes more and more complex as you, for example, go to these libraries. For example, I re recall at the beginning of CATS when I was uh, uh, doing basic stuff, there was semi-group and little few others uh, that people will know in the basic ones. Now there is so many semi-group, all these, the other. And that's great from the point of view of uh, grouping them. But from the point of view of discovery or depending on them polymorphically, uh, it's a pain and something that is now working in the coding community. So lesson learned. Thing we're trying uh, to change, simplify. Is there a way that if people want to help out with Arrow, is that are there like starter issues right now? Or yeah, we have a uh, depending on on their level in Kotlin or in the level uh, they have in functional programming, we have uh, many many different uh, issues in different uh, libraries. So Arrow right now has like three main libraries or four main libraries that is composed of, as so it's becoming more like a framework. And these libraries themselves have also micro libraries inside. For example, in the case of Arrow Core, which would be the core library where you find basic data types and the basic uh, abstractions. Um, there you have uh, also support for, for type classes and what you would wanna do if you wanted to build like a library from scratch, uh, with like the, what the language doesn't provide for functional programming, basically. We have ErroFX, which is the effects library. And the effects library uh, covers the entire I.O. There's also now a streaming. Uh, it's going to cover more features in the features such as remote functions and other features that we are going to introduce in the effect uh, system that are nothing like the, the, the ones that are being done in Cat's effect or in that ecosystem. So it's, uh, I would say, in a way, it's a, it's a different approach, and people can come and help in any of them depending on the topic. We also have the optics library and the meta library. Optics library, um, they're doing something, yet uh, in the same spirit of ergonomics and making it easier, which is uh, we are automatically going to project all lenses compositions over companion objects or data classes that are notated as people wanting optics on them. And this allows people to use dot notation without having to create their optics or compose them or uh, anything at all. And it has into the EA in support as well. As I mentioned in like this scattered issues for all levels, uh, there's also issues for documentation and people that want to learn functional programming have both in the arrow channel, the Kotlin Slack. Uh, we frequently mentor people at any level. So if you're just like 
wanting to learn. I said, hey, I don't know where to start. Uh, and I would like to contribute something. You can find a, a piece of documentation that can be improved for some fundamental concepts and those to you until you get it. And you can uh, contribute to that. And uh, we are also in the Academy uh, Slack in seven degrees, helping people in Calvin, Haskell, Scala, uh, in different areas, and also mentoring people that are coming uh, to help with Aero. It's been a great uh, journey so far. We've learned a lot of things. Uh, we started with very basic things because Aero started as a group of uh, friends here in Spain. And one of my friends wanted to code option in Kotlin to see what it would look like. So I was like, sure, knock yourself out. Here you go. This is what it looks like. And then he was excited. And then and they did more and they did more and more people came to contribute. And now we realize many of them don't make sense, but it was good organic growth at the time. We're cutting back and being stable. And we are very happy because we are seeing a lot of adoption and we are seeing companies using it, people interested in the courses for design degrees. Uh, it's providing uh, functional programming in Aero uh, and in all these uh, areas. So it's been a great journey so far, and it's been tons of people. We had lots of uh, contributors, and I think our main maintainers, like five or six maintainers that are active uh, right now. So That's really great. Is so I just want to touch point back on 47 Degrees Academy. Uh, you all have lessons and talks for Haskell, Scala, and Kotlin. Am I missing anything? Swift. Oh, Swift as <laughs> so well. These, yes. yes. So these are the four languages that we are currently uh, covering in the, in the academy. Uh, many people involved. Uh, you might know some of them from the community. We have uh, Valentin. Uh, the Scala community. We have uh, Alejandro Serrano in the Haskell side. Uh, he's uh, with the Book of Monads and the GC comedy. And also we have uh, Tomas, which is the author of the Bo library. Bo is basically uh, it is started like a similar library like Arrow. Uh, so first we started Arrow and had people in iOS that were interested in putting some of that to iOS. A, uh, uh, Thomas basically wrote uh, a huge port of error to the point that at some point he advanced us in, in the development of the IOs and effects in other areas. He diverged in a new encoding that he found for higher kind of types on Swift uh, with protocols that is possible too. So it's that library is uh, similar to error in, in scope. Also offering courses on that also generically in the languages. So people that want to get started with Kotlin or Scala, and they don't know anything, or they have very basic uh, programming skills from other languages, are doing those uh, kind of courses. It's currently structured in like a three uh, or four kind of way offering. So all of our talks uh, and small webinars are uh, free. We're having like two or three or four a week. You might be seeing if you follow us on Twitter, you can get basically a continuous stream of cool concepts of all levels in functional programming and other software-related topics. And also, all of those are free, as mentioned, and we have also 
longer webinars and longer courses that span over several days that are instructor-led, and those are paid. And we will have in the future uh, both free and downloadable content that we are creating. Because uh, 47 Degrees has put an entire marketing and, and production team behind with uh, the intent to bring all of these concepts, as you're seeing in the animations and the talks, uh, trying to illustrate and kind of bring uh, functional programming more approachable uh, audience uh, style for, for audience that is not well versed in category theory or, or concepts. Uh, they are confused by uh, you know, the different jargons <laughs> and the different problems people find when they try to, to learn functional programming. That's uh, the purpose of uh, Academy. And we launched it last month. It's been going great. Uh, we have a Slack it's, uh, going, uh, with people every day. Um, people are liking the talks. I'm enjoying it. I'm learning new things from my colleagues every day. <laughs> I focus more lately on so I don't have uh, much time to keep up with uh, Swift and others. But uh, yeah, uh, that's a, a new initiative. and. And we are, that's a way for us to react to, to the current crisis uh, with COVID and everything that happened in the world. We needed to find a way to reach out to people isn't just you know, going to conferences and going to, to meetups. I think uh, it's been a stressful because it took a lot of work to put together and coordinate people, but luckily, uh, we have the best team, and I am so um, honored and grateful for them because uh, the great work they've done. Like, literally, I can tell you, man, in all honesty, my last talk I had to do was script how I wanted the animations and then come up with some video sample codes for what I wanted to show. <laughs> and so that's uh, me... Uh, Great uh, advance forward, uh, and we were, uh, we're, tr we're seeing that all of these different people and trainers and they're uh, com uh, doing the content, if we have like a cohesive way to deliver and we're doing it this way, we are reaching uh, more people uh, from other audiences uh, as well, not just like the regular functional programmer that frequently was because of our Scala coding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. I was going through it this morning, and you guys have a lot of talks for being up for a month. Yeah, we've been trying to keep it, uh, it uh, ongoing to make it really a, a place where you can go and get your functional programming fix <laughs> a week. <laughs> The only place, of course, because there's tons of great content in other places. By no means, we're doing anything that I mean, our content is uh, other content is good. This uh, is great. This by great professionals. You guys all know them. Uh, so it's really the people behind it, and again, the marketing team uh, did a great job. So hard months have been uh, challenging months and sad months for everyone. But also, it has been a, a good point to step back and see what's really uh, important and kind of like shift gears. 
I think it's really appreciated by everyone. I think there's a lot to learn there. Yes. So kind of bouncing away from FP away from Kotlin, we can kind of talk about you a little bit. Uh, so other than in the times that we're in right now, which I know everyone's schedules have changed, what they're doing has changed, but what do you usually do outside of programming? Well, uh, outside of programming, I do much, to be honest. <laughs> but some of the things that I enjoy, uh, I play electric guitar. Uh, I have a band with my good friend Benji, who is on the marketing team in 7 Degrees. And uh, he's a great author. We have a side band called The Free Monads about to release uh, our first single <laughs> uh, called Ben Montoya and the Free Monads. And uh, that's something that is definitely not something I do professionally. But I enjoy a lot. So we get together uh, before the pandemic, usually every Friday. Lately, uh, we've been seeing each other online and collaborating online, but hopefully we'll get together again. Another things I do, I, I like uh, skateboarding. Um, I used to skateboard a lot when I was a teenager, but uh, I have to for a long time. And now that I'm 40, most I'm back to relearning skateboarding. So I built a pipe in my backyard <laughs> and I'm trying not to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> so those, uh, those things keep me uh, kind of occupied. Those are great. Uh, so I'm actually really interested in this one. What have you been learning lately? Learning. Um, I've been learning lately. So I've been learning um, well the Golden Compiler. Learning the reading the Golden Compiler code for the last two years has been a stop learning experience every day. So that's something that I pretty much uh, I learn something new every day there. But uh, lately, I've also been um, working uh, strongly in this. Uh, areas that I mentioned earlier, the space of data flow analysis in programming uh, languages and space of uh, continuations and generalized continuations and optimizations over uh, continuations to make them uh, more optimized. So those are the two areas. So they're kind of like, uh, I mean, work related. So it's could say that could be part of work as well, but it's something that I'm generally interested in. So I take time off work duties as a CTO to do other things that uh, you know, help me. And I've also been doing some gardening lately, trying to pick up some relaxing side uh, <laughs> activities that keep my tough computers. That's always good to have, especially because it's summer. <laughs> so, what does your background in programming look like? Like, where did when did you start? So, my background, uh, my first exposure to programming when I was a kid, probably I was born in 1980, and when I was a kid, probably around my six or seven years old, uh, my dad uh, had studied back in the days. Uh, those professional side courses that were in Spain and they will teach you how computers work and it was with those punch cards and like the very old school style. So at the time he bought an MSX uh, V20 Canon computer. It's a kind of computer that has a cartridge and you hook up to a 
uh, TV. And at the time, was, uh, the video game systems were still coming up. There were not that many, at least not in Spain. They were not popular. And I saw this video game of this spaceship, like uh, Arkanoid style, the game. And uh, my dad told me that those games are made with code. He showed me a magazine he had uh, that basically had uh, pages printed out of games. That's how they used to sell magazines in Spain before for, they would just print out code. You would just have to copy the code and type it when you go home. So I did that. And uh, I did, a, I spent like three days of my nine and 10s trying to code that book. That, that game and it was like a five or six pages and it never compiled and that got me super frustrated <laughs> so <laughs> never got to play it <laughs> i got to play it from a friend that had a copy that actually worked that somebody else gave him but anyway in the future that uh, later in the future um i, I was always uh, interested in computers so i had a 486 uh, old computer and I broke apart in the operating system, like trying to modify the auto-executable files and the binary files and see how things work. So that kind of like got me more interested in computers. And then lately, um, my late, uh, when I was like around 19, uh, I kind of uh, uh, got independent, so I moved into my own place and started working. I worked, they needed some work with uh, JavaScript and PHP. It wasn't a company, it was like a dental clinic, and I was the guy for everything there. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> I just did it, and I continued. And since uh, then, I went through PHP. I did a little of uh, Delphi at the beginning. I did a little of C, uh, mostly Java throughout my uh, 20s. Uh, since practically all my 20s were Java. And uh, in 2010, the end of 2010 or 2011, uh, that's when I got in touch with uh, Scala for the first time. I got, uh, I remember, I think it was Martin's uh, book, one of the early editions. And I was in a holiday. Uh, and it was a time where 47 Degrees wasn't doing good. We were just uh, being started. Uh, and we were also just getting started. Very little people, but also distributed. Uh, so part of the, us were in the US, other part were in Spain. I I went on vacation into my grandma's house, pick up the book, and trying to get my head off the business problems and other things. I saw the book, <laughs> and I started learning Scala. And then the implicit uh, features and all those uh, fascinated me. And when I started using it, I started using feature with option and comprehensions and things like that. And the inability to get to the option fascinated me. It's a problem that I couldn't solve. Then I got into Mona Transformers. It's led me down the rabbit hole to, to free monads and all the way here. So it's basically been always... Uh, frustrating problem or frustration and that leads me to the next uh case yes yeah that's that's my story with programming i just want to thank you for being on the podcast this has been really great
Well, thank you so much, Zach, and sorry I couldn't make it earlier. It's been a, a pleasure. Thank you.